now or getting close to it. A man named Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called On the Religious Affections. And what he meant was not just the word affection, but literally the idea of the emotion of a believer. In a lot of ways, when we talk about Christianity, we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about, we talk about theology. We talk about truth. We talk about the things we must know and confess that we must have the proper knowledge of who Jesus is, that we must know who God is, and that's right and true and good. And we talk about the life a Christian must live, be repentant, to pursue holy living, to repent of sins, to walk away from darkness, and that's right and true and good. And we talk about certain ways that Christianity intersects our lives in specific situations, like our dating life or our sex life or, or those type of things. But what we almost never talk about is the reality that the gospel must have an impact on our emotional life. Right? The gospel must impact our emotional life. Now, let me get a couple things out of the way. Number one, because we are Westerners, and by that I don't mean Texans, right? I mean Western Civ, we don't talk about emotion a lot at all anyway. All right? Now, we kind of have a therapeutic culture. But when we talk about therapeutic culture, we, we tend to talk about being wholeness or finding ourselves or those type of things. We don't talk about emotion much. In Western culture, emotion is very repressed in many, many, many ways, all right? Some ways that may be good and some ways that may be bad. Uh, we tend to be very free with our, our love, uh, our sexual love and showing it and expressing it in those type of ways, but we can be very repressed in other ways. Like for example, in Western culture, it is not okay to grieve publicly. That's not good, that's bad, all right? But you're not allowed to grieve publicly. If, you're, if you've lost someone or you've lost something, you are expected to grieve, to let people know that you can tell them you're struggling, but you're not supposed to be really de demonstrative with your grief. You're, if you're gonna cry, try to do it privately, keep it together for the funeral. Have you ever seen like a Mideastern funeral? Like an, an Arabic funeral? Those people look like they're about to break into a fist fight. They're crying so hard, like screaming and yelling. They're very public with their grief. Westerners, very controlled with their grief. So we don't talk about emotions in certain ways a lot. And one of the ways, the most significant way that Western culture has dampened emotion is in the religious life. The secular idea of religion has so overwhelmed Western culture that even churches in America have begun to agree with it. And what I mean by that is this. In Western churches, just like this one here, just like you, it's okay to be a little emotional about God, but you better not be too emotional. Because if you get too emotional about God, you're one of those whack job people, right? You can be in a church that teaches the gospel, preaches the gospel, loves Jesus, loves the Bible, and if you get too worked up emotionally about it, you're one of those weirdos. Religion is best kept in your own house. If you wanna be crazy about Jesus, be crazy somewhere else. You all know what I'm talking about. Because you've all run into that guy or that girl that just is always talking about, oh, Jesus is so good, he's so good, and just going like that, and you're going, so calm down. And what I want to tell you is this. There is a 
No such thing as the Christian life without redeemed emotions. No such thing. And two, and here's what I really want you to get tonight. It is impossible to live the Christian life without redeemed emotions. Number one, there is no such thing as the Christian life without redeemed emotion. Number two, it's impossible to live the Christian life without redeemed emotion. Let me just start, I could just give you this verse and walk out of the room and you'd go, okay, gotcha, done. This is the end. This is one of those times that you get to point to a Bible verse and go, and walk out, because that's it. There's no discussion, right? This is Jesus's ultimate commandment. Jesus's ultimate commandment is not be sexually pure. Jesus's ultimate commandment is not go and make disciples. Jesus's ultimate commandment is not vote Republican. (laughs) Jesus's ultimate commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, does anything in that verse speak to you of reigning in your love for God or reigning in your passion for God? No. In fact, it says the opposite. It says that the Christian life is largely one of attempting to stoke into flame the passion and love for God that you have and to express it with everything you have. Now, let me be real clear in here. What I am not saying is that you have to become some super emotional, crying, weeping, flailing person, (laughs) right? Because we're all individuals and God makes us individuals for a reason. And some of us express our emotions certain ways and some of us express our emotions in other ways and there's nothing wrong with that. What I am telling you is this, I I, okay, you, you probably figured this out from, I am a very phlegmatic person. Now you go, okay, I don't know that word, all right? Okay, if you're about to graduate from college and you don't know that word, go back and do it again. Um, I'm just kidding. Phlegmatic means very even-keeled emotionally, right? Like this is joy and this is rage. That's me, that's who I am. I am very, very even keeled emotionally. But you're saying, but Greg, you just said that you must have these emotions that Jesus commands the, um, these emotions. Right, but how I express them will be different than how you express them. My wife, very open emotionally, just a wide open emotional book. How she expresses those emotions are going to be different. What I need to be concerned about is are they there? Are they there? Not how do I need to express them in a way that it's appropriate for you, but are they there in me and am I expressing them in the way that I was built to express them? And, and in other words, if I am in love with God, what does, how does Greg Pinkner show love? And am I doing that in the realm of God? How do you show love and how are you doing that to God? Do you see what I mean? It's as individual as we are. It's as an individual as the fingerprints in the room. But the question is not, 
How do, should we all express it? Like some of you may feel real comfortable during worship raising your hands and jumping. Some of you may not. But the question is when you sing those songs is what is in your heart a burning passion for God? And are you expressing it the way you express it? Right? Because I want you to see that when it comes to the book of Revelation, when we get down to the final chapters of the Bible, some of the things that God begins to throw out at us and the ways that he's speaking about people that are being condemned come straight out of this lack of fervor, this lack of passion. Right? Like, for example, in Revelation chapter 3, it says this, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, literally vomit, you out of my mouth. In Revelations chapter 2, he says this. Now pay attention to this language. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So that's God speaking to the church of Ephesus and praising them. Okay, so notice what he says. This is all the things you've done right. Yeah, I know your works, your toil, you work hard, your patient endurance. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. See, here's something that is true about the human heart, the human soul. And I'm gonna explain Western culture to you a little bit more and counter it a little bit. Here's, here's a rule of human existence. We are rarely utterly indifferent. We are rarely utterly indifferent. And what I mean by that is this, there is almost nothing that we are neutral on, right? Now, here's, have you ever had this conversation? I've had this conversation 500,000 times. You've probably had as many. You and a group of friends are, are trying to go out to eat, right? That is the most frustrating thing ever. Like you, the more people, like there should, I need some math genius to come up here and give me a formula. The more people in the group exponentially increases the amount of time it will take to pick a restaurant. Right? That's called Greg's Law, written down. There it is, okay? It's down, it's in the books. But you'll sit down and you'll say, hey, where do you wanna go eat? And then, you know, like there's, everybody wants to go to one place, there's one person who doesn't wanna go to that one place, and you're like, okay, we gotta pick something that one person likes. But they're kinda weird and vegetarian, so you're like, we're not going where you wanna go. We're going somewhere that has stuff we call food. So we're going to this other place. So you're getting ready to go to this other place. And then there's the one person in the group. And if you're that person, when this is done, come up and receive your slap because you need to wake up. You, the whole time, are going, I don't care. I could not care less where we go. I don't care where we go. Wherever we go is fine. Now look around the room and point at that person, okay? Because here's what happens. 
You go around the room and everybody goes, I don't care. I could not care less. I'll go wherever you want to go. And finally the whole group goes, we're going to Chili's. And then that person goes, oh, not Chili's. You just worked for 45 minutes to figure out where to go. The person the whole time going, I don't care. I couldn't care less. I could not care less. I could not care less. No. Sushi. We are rarely indifferent. And by the way, the phrase is I could not care less, right? Have you heard people say I could care less, which means you do care. Please correct those people. <laughs> we are rarely utterly indifferent. And that's true in life. And it's especially true in the realm of the things of God. There's no such thing as neutral. There's no such thing as sitting still. You're going forward or you're rolling back. And when it comes to the religious affections, the part of the heart that the, that the emotions of our lives. Let me tell you this and let me tell you this and please listen to me. Emotions are the fuel of our lives. Emotions are the fuel of our lives. You will rarely stay at anything in your life. There is no way to stay at anything in your life that does not somewhere have the fuel of emotion. Joy, pain, love, anger, something. Those are what fuel us. Now, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book in which he talked about that one of the things our culture did was raise, he said men, but it applied to everyone, men without chests. And what he meant by that was Western culture is particularly adept at raising people who don't know how to use emotion to fuel the soul. They don't know how to use emotion to fuel themselves and how what proper use of emotion is. And he came out and he said, here's the thing though, emotion is the only thing that can tame the beast. That's the kind of the, the language he used for the sinful self. In the passage I'm about to read you or, or the, the quote I'm about to look at you, he talks about the belly as being the part of the human that is sinful and animal. That sort of idea. And the head is the rational part. And this is what he says. As the king governs by his executive, so reason in man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, the emotion. The head rules the belly through the chest. The head rules the belly through the chest. And what I want you to see tonight, one of the one of the things I want you to walk out of here is this. Hatred of and abhorrence of sin can only come when the love of God takes its rightfully supreme place. Let me let you in on a secret of life. You cannot just do away with something you love. There is no such thing as being in love and then love disappearing. The only way you get rid of something you love is if you replace it with a greater love. 
And one of the problems that we have oftentimes when we start trying to repent of our sins is that we don't get that we must replace the love we have for feeding our sinful urges with the love of God. Or you're just going to go back to the place where you receive that emotional lift or that emotional thing. Most of our sin problems, and I know most of mine, come not from a rational thought out, I want to disobey God, but from this place in me that I I can't control this animal urge almost that is pure emotion. I want to be satisfied and will be satisfied. And the joy I get from it or the, or the, the happiness I get from it is momentary. But I cannot kid myself that there's not an emotional engagement in why I do what I do. And there's not one in you either. See, I want to give you this kind of visually, because I know some of us in here are visual learners. And so I want you to try to see this. Let's, let's just take this triangle for a minute, okay? And let's say each one of these triangles represents in our lives a certain passion, a love, okay? And that, and ultimately what there must be in each human heart is one supreme passion. There must be one governing love. Now, in every one of us, that is the love of self. There are no exclusions, even if you're a Christian. Right now, our governing passion is the love of self. And that governing passion shapes every other one of our other passions. There is nothing else Okay? There is no passion that is exempt from the love of self. It governs everything. Now, let's say this white triangle in the middle is the passion for God. All right? Now, the non-believer, what we were before we know Christ, does not have that. So he or she is governed totally by the love of self. Now that will play itself out in every single person in a million different ways. Some people because of their love of self will totally pursue achievement. Some people because of their love of self will totally pursue, pursue leisure. Um, anything that you can think of, it's twisted because of that idea. But when we become a believer, the passion, the love of God comes into our lives. And what discipleship is in a lot of ways, what the Christian walk is, is learning to place the love of God on a higher and higher realm in each one of our place so that more and more passions in our lives become governed by our love for God. When we first become Christians, it's kind of easy at start, right? Like when you first become a believer, you're just on fire. And you're like, whoa, water gun, hell, let's go now. Like you're on. But as that fades, you begin to find it's very difficult to reorder the life. And so what the Christian life becomes is this steady beginning of understanding of how to submit things to that passion of the love of God, to set it down, to begin to allow it to fuel you over and over and to let it grow within you, fanning it into flame as it marches its way up and becomes more and more a ruling paradigm of how we live our lives until ultimately, and I don't think this will ever really happen until we are in heaven or Jesus returns. Love of God becomes our ruling, governing paradigm and everything flows out of it. And every single thing flows out of it. 
But we must see that as the love of God rises above all these other things, all these other passions become subordinate to it. But while we, or should we, place the love of God down further in the, in the hierarchy, fewer and fewer passions become governed by it. And what you need to, and I need to know more than anything is what Lewis says, without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against them. Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against them. In the redeemed Christian, part of our, our purpose in sanctification, what we have to do is to begin to purposefully fan into flame the love of God and asking God to help us raise our love of him above all our other loves. So they become subordinate to it. Because when we do that, when I love God more than I love my lusts, my lusts will become abhorrent to me. And I won't just have to get rid of them, I'll want to. Okay? Let me give you kind of a gross example from personal experience. I'm kidding. Um, let's say there's a guy who's dating three girls at the same time. Okay? Obviously, that's not from personal experience. That's like lifetime total. Um, <laughs> let's say there's a guy dating three girls at once, or a girl dating three guys at once. Equality and stuff. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the one comes along. Okay? Soulmate. I mean, perfection in female or male form, depending, right? All of a sudden, the three that you were dating before become pointless, right? They're gone. They're done. They're out. They can be going, but we had good times. You're through. Get to stepping, right? <laughs> You're done. Why? Because the great love is coming, and I know it, and I see it. Some of you have had this happen to you. Some of us, has ha you, this has happened to you. You've been, you were dating somebody and you broke up for just a little bit and you're going, well, maybe I'll go back to him. And then all of a sudden the one came in and you went, goodbye, trash, okay? <laughs> Why? Because your love is gone? No, because a greater love has replaced it, right? But that's exactly what we have to do in the realm of our passions. We must begin to train them to seek God because that is where the power to resist sin comes from. Now, let me be clear. All of this is the gift of God. All of it. Our redeemed emotions are not something we can fabricate. They are a gift given to us from God, but they are the means through which your victory over sin will occur. All right? I want to read you a quote from a guy named R.J. Snell. Actually, a couple of quotes. I think they're brilliant. He says this, Appetites, and he means sinful appetites, are powerful and tricky things. And before you realize that they can be governing your life, ordering reason about and commanding reason to become cunning in satisfying them. Boy, do I know that sentence. Some of you are right there with me. Some of us become geniuses at satisfying sin and not getting caught. Like you could run like an Ocean's 13 scam 
and some of the ways that you get away with what you know is sinful. You know it, I know it. Appetites are powerful, tricky things. Before you realize that they can be governing your life, ordering reason about and commanding reason to become cunning and satisfying them. But the person who is able to be angry, that is, who is able to be angry at the very thought of acting shamefully or of wanting something detestable, this is the person most capable of acting and living well over the long haul and especially when it counts. There is no emotion more energizing than anger. Right? There's no emotion more energizing than anger. You're like, love. No. No. Okay? Love is powerful, but I'm talking about immediate energy. Are you with me? Like, you know what I'm talking about? You ever gotten mad? Like, all of a sudden, you're like, like, that's where the Hulk comes from. Like, when you get mad, you get powerful. And what this author is saying is when you get to the place to where the love of sin is subordinate to the love of God and you become angry about wanting to sin, the power to resist it wells up in you. And all of a sudden you have all the energy you need to get away from it. And the fuel for resisting sin becomes a redeemed emotion. Anger is not sinful. It can be used sinfully, but anger in itself is not sinful. If it was, Jesus didn't save us because he got angry a lot. It was righteous anger. There is such a thing. But I want you to know this is another way in which living the Christian life will make us countercultural. Anyone who is truly passionate about anything in our culture is mocked. Okay, you're like, well, that's not true. It is true. See, what you'll hear people talk about is, I'm very passionate about my art. I'm very passionate about Haiti. I'm very passionate about orphans in a very cool and detached way. You ever notice that? True emotion, true emotion is fuel, especially when it comes to the thing of God, is considered foolishness. Our culture lauds uh, certain attributes that do their very best to dampen the emotion. One of the most damaging uh, things that I've seen come through uh, our culture in the last 20 years is the rise of just obliterating sarcasm, okay? What I mean by that is this, Sarcasm allows for lots of cowardice. And generally speaking, the more sarcastic a person is, what you have there is not a bold observer of reality, which is what they call themselves, but a coward who doesn't want to have to put anything out there, doesn't want their heart exposed, and rather can mock you into submission. That's why I out sarcasm them. I want you to listen to this quote. I thought this was another brilliant quote from R.J. Snell. It says this, and we do laugh at honor, don't we? Living in a world which values the ironic, the cool, the detached, the unmasked, the transgressive. It's thought naive to value spirit, tradition, nobility, ideals, reverence for the past, 
and piety for the dead, it's thought rubbish to want to be a statesman. That means somebody who has honor in their culture. We mock provincial simplicity and choose rather to deconstruct our cultural patrimony. That means we'd rather uh, be cool than think about what got us where we were. Our heroes are all emperors with no clothes. And we are geldings bid to be fruitful. That means a castrated horse that they're trying to get to father children. So what do we do? If we go the way the world tells us, it will be impossible for us to bear fruit. We won't have the fuel. I know many of you have been on the Christian roller coaster. Up, down, up, down. Have you ever noticed that those highs usually come around time of a great emotional experience or a great emotional interaction with God? Am I lying? What do we do? One, as always, we repent. We go to God and we ask him to forgive us for spending our passion on things that are not him. Don't hear me wrong. God invented joy. God invented happiness. God invented those things and he wants us to enjoy them, but in their proper places. God has no problem with us being passionate at a UT football game. God will send people to hell if they are more passionate about UT football than they are about him. Are you with me? Go scream and yell and have fun at a sporting event or a concert or whatever. Enjoy it. Great. But there cannot be more of a joyful experience than what you have knowing who God is and knowing what God has done, and knowing who Jesus is. So ask God to forgive you for where you've spent your passions on things that aren't him. And acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge my sin, I do. Go to him and say, I get it. My heart is not loving you with all of its strength. My mind is not loving you with all its strength. My soul is not loving you with all my strength. I get it. I see it. Number two is pray. Begin to ask God because only God can renew the heart. You can't do it. And one of the things I want you to hear me saying is this, and I want you to be careful. Because one of the ways you can fool yourself is to try to manufacture emotions. And you can do it. We are very capable of manufacturing false emotion. In Jonathan Edwards' book, one of the sentences he says that, you know, you kind of go, well, that wasn't really helpful, John, is when he says this, there is no such thing, there is no true spirituality without the affections, but just because the affections are there doesn't mean there's true spirituality. You're like, okay, awesome, thanks. For nothing, Right? We can manufacture all kinds of false realities. Only God can awaken the true affections in us. Only God can awaken your heart. Only God 
can awaken your heart. So go ask him to do it. Don't go to another conference. Don't go to another church. Don't go to six church services on a Sunday. Don't try to get, you know, I'm gonna get a million worship albums and that's all I'm gonna listen to because that'll do it. No, it might, it might. But God is going to be the one who does it. Go to him. Quit trying to find the next big fix. Go to God and start saying, if you don't awaken my heart, if you don't do this, no one will. Only you can awaken my heart. Only you can do this. And then, and this may seem a little paradoxical, but follow me here, don't quench the spirit. See, only God can set the fire to your heart. So when he does, don't pour water on it. Now, let me show you one of the ways and what I mean. One of the first things that God does when he grants us repentance, and don't be mistaken, God grants us repentance, it's him. One of the first things you will feel when the Holy Spirit comes on you, get ready, you're like, joy, yeah, woo, right? No, one of the first things you will feel when the Holy Spirit comes upon you is shame. Shame. Because when the Holy Spirit falls upon us, we really begin to get how sinful we are. Not just in theory, but in reality. Embrace it. Feel it. Engage that. Engage that sadness because it is that emotion, that power that's going to allow you to truly begin to engage those sinful places in you. The Holy Spirit comes and then when you truly begin to understand the gospel, that you are forgiven of those sins, that shame turns in to joy. Like the Apostle Paul says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to joy. This kindness that leads us to repentance. When God makes me sorrowful for sin, it's a gift because he's giving me the energy I need to engage those things. Don't quench the spirit. Don't immediately start going, well, I'm feeling bad about sin, so I'm gonna go, just, I'm gonna go over here, I'm gonna get away from it because I don't wanna feel bad. Blah, blah, blah. Which is what we do. We are a culture that doesn't wanna feel bad ever. But when you quench that feeling, that's the Holy Spirit. As soon as you go, I don't wanna feel that, then the Holy Spirit goes, okay, well, I'll just wait here. I want to leave you with this verse. It's from 2 Timothy. For this reason, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The Holy Spirit is there to guide us. It's there to help us. He'll do what it needs to to get us there. But I hope over this summer, wherever you're going, if you're staying here and going to school or if you're headed to work at a camp or work at a summer job or whatever it is, you'll take time over the summer to begin to ask God to transform your heart and to make it into the engine you need to live out the Christian life. Would you uh, stand let me pray for you? So we break for the semester. You guys can pray for me too because by the time we come back next year, I'll be a dad. Scary. 
And I'm just saying, the due date is June 8th. So if you have anything you want to do, do it before that, because it could be the Antichrist. Let's just be honest. <laughs> what? I'm just keeping it real. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for these students who take time out of their week to come and hear your word. And I pray that your spirit does much with it. Beyond anything they hear out of my mouth, it's worthless. My words are dust. They're foolishness. Puffs of air from a, a weed. But your word is forever. Your word is forever. And what your Holy Spirit teaches them over the course of these weeks or even years they've been here will be reminded to them even in heaven and eternity. Not my words, but yours. God, we will all grow, flower, fade, and die. But your word will live. So God, bury it deep. Plant it deep in our hearts and water it and tend to it and let it explode into a harvest of righteousness, of joy, of passion for your name. God, in all things, let us be a people called by your name. And so for your name and your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior King. Amen.